Well, this morning, uh, we do begin our study in the book of Romans. As you know, um, I want to do my best. I want to be faithful. I want to be consistent as I teach God's Word, and therefore, we will go through this book the same way we have done every book that we have studied, and that is we will do it verse by verse and chapter by chapter until we finish that book. Let me just say that there is no better way to teach the Scripture than the way that it was written. Yes, there are other ways, but there's no better way than to teach God's Word than the way that it was written. We will never be able to grasp the true meaning of any section of Scripture unless we understand the intent of the author. And therefore, knowing, as we all do, that there is a context to everything, we want to follow that context from the beginning all the way to the end in order to see how the Holy Spirit has inspired this author and what he was to write. Now, as we work our way through this book, through this letter, um, I'm sure it's not going to surprise anybody in this room that we will absolutely not be in any hurry. There is no pride to be had by saying, hey, look at us, we finished this book in a month, or two months, or ten weeks, or what have you. Nobody ever asks the question, yeah, but how much did you skip over? How many principles did you miss? How many times did you read five or six verses and just hit one point and move on? No one ever asks that. We'll do our best to not do that. If we want to know what the Scripture says and certainly what it means by what it says, it must be studied, and it must be studied historically, it must be studied grammatically, the grammar, and it must be studied contextually. And as you know, we'll try our best to do that as well. Now, in saying all this, I want to begin this morning, as I do with every new book, and that is with an introduction, Okay. This morning, we're simply going to look at uh, a little bit of background. Who wrote the letter? Uh, who is the author writing to? Why did he write this letter in the first place? And I'm sure a couple of other things, so as we could better understand this before we begin to dig in. It's always so much better to have a mindset, to have an understanding as we begin any letter in Scripture. To, be, to know what's behind it. And then as we begin to study, you can go, now I know why he said that. Now I know why he commented on that. So you begin to grasp the actual truth of Scripture because we live in a world where even Christians take God's Word out of context all the time. Now the easiest part that I have this morning is on telling you who is the author of the book of Romans and to no surprise, that would be the Apostle Paul. Paul, as many of you know, wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books, basically, if you will, half. Eight of those 13 letters, uh, he identified himself in those letters more than once. Matter of fact, in the book of 1 Corinthians, numerous times, Paul writes and mentions his own name. In the little book of Philemon, which is only one chapter long, he actually mentions his name three times. Here, though, in the book of Romans, which is 16 chapters, 
he mentions himself by name just once. Just once. He actually begins the letter. Chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Just like we do today, we typically sign our our letters or emails or whatnot with our name. They began it, and Paul just mentions his name that one time. Now, even though he only mentions his name just the one time, Paul, being the official author of this letter, is denied by honestly about no one. No one actually denies that Paul wrote this letter. Even the ancient heretics originally in the first and second century agreed that the Apostle Paul was the author of Romans. 20th century critics, people who even deny some of the facts of Scripture, even they understand the Apostle Paul to be the author. With numerous internal references, in other words, with a lot of things that Paul says in the book of Romans, with those internal references, also they also correspond to other books that Paul has written. It's very, very difficult to dispute Paul's authorship of this letter. Now, as far as the book of Romans uh, as a whole is concerned, there's also not much debate on the fact that it is the most theological book in the New Testament. How many people here have studied, went through the book of Romans? One, two, three, okay, not too many, all right. It is, once again, the most theological book in the New Testament. To quote D. Edmund Hebert, he says, The epistle to the Romans is acknowledged to be one of the most profound books in existence. Not just the New Testament, (laughs) but in existence, he says. Its impressive grandeur and the impenetrable depths make it one of the most highly prized parts of Holy Scripture. It has very appropriately been termed the cathedral of the Christian faith. It was not without adequate reason that this matchless epistle was assigned the first position among the Pauline writings in our New Testament canon. In other words, it's the first book listed by Paul was the book of Romans. It forms one of the major bulwarks of evangelical Christianity. One more, Dr. Earl Rodmacher Uh, This is a gentleman that I had the privilege of seeing probably 32, 33 years ago. He has passed away now. But in a lengthier quote, he says, Romans serves as the flagship of the fleet of Pauline letters within the New Testament. This letter has also loomed large in the history of Christianity. Countless men and women of faith have singled out Romans as the weapon that God graciously used to bring about their surrender to Christ, to people like Augustine, Martin Luther, John Wesley, and others. They received unexpected spiritual volleys from Romans that pierced their defenses and ended their rebellion against God. Romans combines breath, logic, and a mature understanding of the Old Testament scriptures into a powerful arsenal. By the time that it was written, the Holy Spirit had shaped the Apostle Paul into a skillful communicator of the faith. The result is his letter to Romans. 
a theological treatise that perfectly fits Paul's description of all Scripture. And many of you know this. In other words, he's saying, he's saying that containing in the book of Romans itself, he says that it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Paul writes to that about in 2 Timothy, saying that's what all Scripture contains. He's saying it goes further. All of that can be found just in the book of Romans. This letter represents, he says, a full expression of apostolic theology. Paul's arguments challenge the secular, pagan mind, yet they also pierce the shallow spiritual confidence of many non-pagans. Romans is a mighty leveler, for it declares in chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And since all are sinners, it comes as a delightful shock that in chapter 5, verse 8, he says God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were all yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is the good news which Paul so eloquently and systematically defends in this theological treatise addressed to the Romans, unquote. As we slowly move our way through the study of the book of Romans, we are going to see, you will recognize that Hebert is right. It is, if you will, the cathedral of the Christian faith. Paul is going to address many doctrines. Things like man's sinfulness, or if you will, the depravity of man. Justification by faith alone. Sanctification, glorification, imputed righteousness, substitutionary atonement, God's sovereignty, and still others. They're all wrapped in a lengthy discussion of the gospel. That word gospel, by the way, which many of you know means good news, is actually mentioned 12 times in this book. Just the word gospel itself is actually mentioned 12 times in this book, not even to mention other times where it's described or it's, or it's implied. Okay, And of course, I hope you know this, but as it's described in Scripture, yes, it means good news. But ultimately, the point is, it is the good news of Jesus Christ. Just the word good news doesn't cut it. People use the word gospel once in a while on the secular news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. To show you that, turn real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. This is about as clear as it gets here. And so I just thought I'd take the time to point it out because I can. <laughs> in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, known for many as the resurrection chapter. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. Paul says this. He says, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word that I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. 
For what I received, I passed on to you, listen, of first importance. This is important as it gets. And what does he say? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. As Paul says there, folks, in verses 1 and 2, that is the gospel, listen, by which we are saved. And what is it? It is the death, it is the burial, it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the simplest form, that is the good news, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, and yet he rose again bodily on the third day. Back here in the book of Romans, that salvation is actually looked at, Paul discusses this, if you will, in three ways. He talks about salvation being of the past, the present, as well as the future. Now, as far as the past is concerned, Paul speaks on how um, he has, God has saved us from the penalty of sin. You and I know that as justification. We have been justified. We've been declared righteous. We've been saved from that penalty of our sin. You'll see that in chapters 4 and 5. As far as the present, he is saving us currently from the power of sin. And that's what we know as sanctification, right? Being made holy. We're saved from the power of sin. We'll see that in chapters 6 and 7. And then in the future, we will be saved from the very presence of sin. And that's when we will be glorified. Glorification, and we'll talk about that in chapter 8. How awesome will that be one day? And setting aside the sin of the world, but even our own sin, we will not have to deal with sin ever, ever again. That's pretty awesome. And therefore, Paul really spends the first eight chapters here talking about the doctrine of salvation, okay? What we know as soteriology, okay? That's, if you ever hear that word, it's the doctrine of salvation. And that it is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Matter of fact, let's say that together. We need to know this. What is it? What is it? Salvation is what? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Man, that is so important, folks. Especially in a world we live in today where brand name people teach so much nonsense against it. Matter of fact, this letter, what we know as the book of Romans, is the greatest doctrinal presentation of the gospel in the entire Bible. Another point of salvation here in the book of Romans is that it is not singularly focused. And what do I mean by that? I mean it's not just for the Jews. Yes, Jesus is, as you know, the Jewish Messiah, right? But salvation has been offered also to the Gentiles, people like you and me, so be grateful for that. As you know, the Apostle Paul was called the Apostle to what? The Gentiles, right? He was, he was called to preach the gospel to 
the Gentiles. And that, of course, started in Acts chapter 9. Many of you know that as we kind of think of Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus. That's where all this took place. Okay. But also right here in Romans chapter 11. You can turn there real quick if you want to follow along. In Romans chapter 11, in verses 13 and 14, I hear the pages turning. It's always a good sound. Paul says, I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles. I make much of my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people, that would be the Jews, that I would arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. In other words, by preaching to you Gentiles, by the Gentiles coming to faith in Christ, I hope this arouses my own people for them to say, really, the Gentiles? We're God's chosen people, and that they too would come to faith in Jesus Christ. You might remember our study in the book of Galatians, uh, chapter 2, verse 8. Paul said, for God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews was also at work in my ministry, he says, as an apostle to the Gentiles. Okay? Paul's writing here in Romans, as well as elsewhere, was to show that there is a union between the Jew and the Gentile under one gospel. We must know that. There is a union together between the Jew and the Gentile under one gospel. We are one body in Christ. One. See? Matter of fact, right here, Romans chapter 10, verse 12. You probably don't have to turn at all from where we just read. Paul says, There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Understand, folks, that the church in Rome was predominantly Gentile. We know that. But it's also very much has a good amount of Jews in there. And certainly we can see that from in this book because the amount of times that Old Testament people, the Abrahams, the Davids, and so forth, as they're mentioned, because he uses that for the Jewish people. But he says specifically here, I'm talking to you Gentiles, which it is predominantly. But there's both sides, and they must come to the conclusion that they are unified, that they are one in Christ. Same thing that Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, speaking about our oneness together. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, Paul says, By abolishing in his flesh, meaning Christ, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two. The two meaning Jew and Gentile. Creating one new man out of the two, thus making peace. And in this one body, 
to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. Very clear. On the oneness we have, there is no separation. I'll read one more. Many of you know this one. Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. The gospel first went to the Jews, didn't it? And then it says, then to the Gentile. It's very much important in this book as we go through this, this bringing together, this coming together, the same gospel, the same body for Jew and Gentile alike. Now at this point, some of you might be asking, why, do, why did Paul spend so much time on these uh, important doctrines? Didn't he already share some of these things when he visited them? Wasn't the gospel and these, these doctrines of salvation thoroughly gone through when he started the church at Rome? Well, the re- answer to that question is, at this point, in about 57 A.D., when Paul wrote this letter, that's about the year he wrote this letter, Paul had never ministered in Rome. When Paul wrote this letter, about 57 A.D., he had never, ever ministered in Rome. Therefore, we must understand, he did not start the church in Rome. Sometimes it's assumed Paul started all these. Not necessarily. That's why you have, and we're blessed to have, kind of thankfully he didn't because without it we wouldn't have this this phenomenal in-depth theological letter that he has given us. But Paul had never been to Rome at that time. He didn't start the church in Rome. As you know, Paul was involved in three or what we call three missionary journeys right? Where Paul had visited numerous cities, uh, and after sharing the gospel, uh, uh, many, many churches had begun. I'm not going to go through all of them, but I refer you back to the book of Acts. You'll see all of those. Uh, Acts is a book of history, the history of the early church. Go back to Acts. You'll see all of those places that Paul visited and those churches that had been started. But with all of that being said, Rome was not one of them. Okay? Rome was not one of them. Now, it doesn't mean that Paul never wanted to go to Rome. That was never the case right here in Romans chapter 1. All the way back to Romans chapter 1 in verse 13. Paul says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now in order that I may have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. So he wanted to go there. Paul had a desire to go there, to share the gospel with the lost, as well as equip this church to take them to their next level, spiritually speaking. Okay? That was his desire to do that. But as I just mentioned, the church was already established. It was already there. Now, as you know, 
Paul did make it to Rome to a certain degree. Let me say that again. Paul did make it to Rome to a certain degree, and he was able to preach, but it was as a prisoner, right? As you know from the story in the book of Acts, chapter 28, actually it ends there in 28, but it comes up to that point. Paul was incarcerated in Rome, right? He was held in a rented house. It tells us that at the very end there in Acts chapter 28. He was chained to a Roman soldier and all of that for two years, by the way, two years. And that took place between about 60 and 62 AD. Okay? So Paul was in Rome, <laughs> but unfortunately he couldn't leave where he was because he was incarcerated. You might remember it was at that time when he was incarcerated that he wrote some letters, right? um, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. Many of you know what those are called. You remember what those are called? The prison epistles. Very good. Yeah. Paul wrote those books while he was held there in Rome. Now, with that being said, knowing from here in Romans chapter 1, verse 13, which I just read to you, that Paul did want to visit the church in Rome. Matter of fact, he says later in chapter 15 that he actually did have a plan. Turn over to chapter 15. Here in chapter 15, look real quick at verses 23 and 24. Paul says... But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, Paul says, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there after I have enjoyed your company for a while. So he's saying here, with Paul having established numerous churches in that region, which was basically called the Roman Empire, by him establishing all those different churches here, um, and he's kind of, well, what does he say? He kind of says, there's not really any more places for me to do so. So yeah, hey, I'd like to come and visit you, okay? That was his goal. He says he longed for many years. Did you see that? He longed for many years to visit the Roman church. Now, just as a side note, that means the Roman church has been in existence for, well, many years, right? I told you he didn't establish it, but it's already been there for many years. Now, we don't necessarily know who started the church in Rome. We can tell you it was not Peter, and he was not the first pope. That, we can tell you, is nonsense. Now, it is certainly possible that um, the the Jews from Rome in Acts chapter 2, verse 10, remember Pentecost? Remember all all those people came to Pentecost? There were Jews from Rome who also came there, heard the gospel, and they obviously went back like millions of people did. They went back to their homelands. And certainly it could have been at that point that they shared the gospel and the church began in Rome. Or it could be something very simple that all the places that Paul had shared, all the cities, people move. People go somewhere else. They start a church. This family goes over here. This family goes over there. And that's the way that the gospel got brought in. We don't know, but it's probably one of those two ways that the church was started. But as he said, it's been many years. 
And Paul desired for that long, I really wanted to come and to see you guys. But now he says, I'm going to do it when I visit Spain. I'll stop there with you. I want to hang out with you. I'd like to have you assist me to help me, right? And then we can spend some quality time there. Now, why didn't Paul visit them then? It says he, he, already, he was already on his third missionary journey. He had already uh, been to all these places, started so many churches. Why didn't, if he, if he longed, as it says in chapter 1, as it says right here, longed for many years, why didn't he go then? Why didn't he come to visit them then? Well, let's continue reading. Same chapter, chapter 15, starting in verse 25. Paul says, now, however, I am on my way to Jerusalem in the service of the saints there. For Macedonia and Achaia were pleased to make a contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in the Jews' spiritual blessings, they owe it to the Jews to share with them in their material blessings. And so after I have completed this task and have made sure that they have received this fruit, this money, I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the full measure of the blessing of Christ. So Paul says right here, when writing this letter, he says that he was actually headed to Jerusalem to drop off the funds, to drop off the money, which he had received from the Macedonian churches, okay? Now listen, with Paul saying this, okay, and us knowing from 1 Corinthians chapter 16, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, he is encouraging them to keep, get their money together. He's encouraging them to, to do the collection on the first day of the week, which by the way is what day? Sunday, right? Because the church had now went from the Sabbath to Sunday. It was the re- day of resurrection, Okay. But he encouraged them in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 to have their collection ready. That way he would not have to collect it. Get it together on the first day of the week. And then in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he mentions the collecting of those funds. Okay, Well, with that happening, most people believe that Paul wrote this letter from Corinth. Okay, And that was at the end of his third missionary journey. He went on three at the end of his third missionary journey, he just said, I'm on my way with the money from the Macedonian churches. Well, he got the money from Corinth. We know that. You can look in both sections. So Paul is probably writing this letter from Corinth, okay? Now, and we know where he's going to, right? We know where he's heading at this time. Now, as far as the time span It was no small task, folks, for Paul to go from Corinth to the church in Jerusalem to give this money, okay? If Paul went by land, and I looked at a map, and you can't just sail there, but if he went there by land, you're looking at 1,800 miles, okay? Driving in a car, that would still take a while, right? But if he was on foot, it's 1,800 miles to take that money from Corinth 
to Jerusalem. And then, as he said right here in verse 28, he wanted, he was desired to leave Jerusalem and then do what? Go to Spain and then stop in Rome. And if he chose to do that, once again, if he did do it by foot, that's an additional 2,175 miles. Yeah, it's a long way. With all of this knowledge in hand, most people believe that Paul never, ever made it to Rome. Paul never made it to Spain. He wanted to go there. Paul wanted to go everywhere, as you know, to share Christ. But there's no knowledge that he ever made it to Rome or, therefore, to Spain. There's no uh, suggestions otherwise. Uh, We know, I shouldn't say we know, we understand from church history that Paul was beheaded in 67 AD under the order of Nero. Okay, And remember, Paul left in Acts chapter 28 when he was held for two years. That was its he left there at 62 AD. Paul also went back to prison, a much harsher prison in Rome, when he wrote 2 Timothy, which was his very last book, because he was beheaded after he wrote that letter to Timothy. So there's not a whole lot of time in between there, okay? So to understand, why didn't Paul just take, go from there? He so much and longed, he said, to visit Rome. He never made it. And if he did, there's nothing written about it in in scripture or in church history. There's just nothing there. Now, as we wind down, many of you know that Paul wrote many of his apostles, okay? Paul wrote many of his, I'm sorry, epistles. Can't read my own writing. Due to issues that were happening in the church, right? Paul wrote, 13 epistles in the New Testament, and many of those were written because of what was going on in those churches. For example, false teachers, just like we still have today, and just numerous of them, that false teachers was a big problem back then. In Galatians, we went through Galatians not too long ago. As you know, Galatians is a book about law and grace. Okay? Law and grace. He dealt with false teachers known as the Judaizers. In Colossians, we studied that book as well years and years ago. In that book, it was something they just simply called the Colossian heresy. Most people, most scholars believe it's some form of a mixture between the Judaizers and the Gnostics. But once again, there was false teaching. Or how about 1 Timothy? Paul wrote, as you know, to Timothy. Timothy was in Ephesus. Okay, he actually states that there. He told them straight up in chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. He says, Timothy, when I left for Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. That's why? So that you may command certain men not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths or endless genealogies. And, I mean, and we can keep going. Setting aside the false teachers, as you know, many letters were written due to sin, due to disagreements, due to disunity. We just finished the book of Philippians, what, less a month ago maybe? Do you remember what happened there in, in chapter 4? Do you remember there were two women involved? Remember that? Eodia and Syntyche? 
They had some kind of personal conflict, and it got ugly. It got heated. It got serious enough that Paul had to mention them by name in his letter to the whole church. And how about Corinth? Wow. Corinth was a problem. You talk about a problematic church, spiritual immaturity, worldliness, carnality. I mean, the city in itself, Corinth, was a disaster. And unfortunately, a lot of the churchgoers, a lot of those who got saved, would bring some of this stuff right into the church. Their culture just followed them, if you will, into the church. Have you ever looked at 1 Corinthians and noticed all of the things that Paul had to write these people on? Disunity, sexual immorality. This guy's having a sexual relationship with his stepmother. Marriage issues. Christians taking each other, each Christians to court. The, the problematic roles of men and women. The problems with communion. People were getting drunk at the agape love feast. Spiritual gifts. I mean, folks, this church was a mess. It was a mess. Why do I tell you all this? Because this doesn't seem to be the issue with Rome. It doesn't seem to be the issue here with Rome. Don't get me wrong, I'm sure with this church being in Rome, which was the mainstay, all roads lead to Rome, they ruled the world at this point in time. I'm sure there was, at least to a certain degree, there were some things that spilled over from the culture into the church. But if that was the case, Paul chose not to spend any time on it. Paul doesn't give any direct information about the inner workings of the Roman church in this letter. He doesn't spend any time, as he did in the other letters, to refute false teaching or to refute sin. He, he just doesn't do it in this letter to the church in Rome. And therefore, we close this introduction with the understanding that Paul wrote this letter to, yes, encourage them in their faith, to share the gospel, which, as you know, Paul wanted to share the gospel wherever he went, and, as mentioned earlier, to give an in-depth understanding of salvation, okay? Jew and Gentile, both together under one body. And, of course, Paul wrote to give a systematic theological discussion in preparation for the time when he was going to visit them. In other words, you read this letter from Paul? Trust me, when Paul got there, you had a lot to talk about, didn't you? A whole lot. But Paul wrote this letter, detailed, to give them something that they would discuss as he visited with them, as he says here in chapter 15. And lastly, of course, it is possible that he might have written some of these things to be proactive. Most everything he writes is reactive. He might have done some of this proactively because there was a lot of polytheism in Rome, lots of false religions, lots of false deities, false gods, and whatnot. And so part of this could certainly not only be for their own benefit, but also help them in preparation because you know, living in the midst of Rome at that time was tough. There's a lot, of, a lot of things you need to grasp and understand at this point. But I hope that that brief, well, 45-minute brief introduction uh, is going to help all of us 
as we next week begin, as we jump into the book of Romans, um, as it says, it, it is a very in-depth study. Um, some of you know probably certain sections of Romans. We know, we, a lot of us know parts of Romans chapter 1, where he talks about what is that which is unnatural, a man with a man, a woman with a woman. Uh, about election, he deals with election in Romans chapter 9. Calvinists love uh, Romans chapter 9. Of course, he talks about salvation all throughout chapters 1 through 8, and then more practical toward the end of the letter. But once again, he doesn't deal with stuff as much as he does in the other letters. He doesn't deal with, what's this problem I hear? What's this sin issue going on? False teachers, he doesn't really get into it. He simply does what we need to do. is He teaches the truth. You learn the truth. And that when, when any false garbage comes along, you're going to know what the truth is. Don't study all the false religions. Just study the truth. Because when you know the truth, anything else, doesn't matter what it is, is false. Remember I talked about this last week. There's truth, and then there's everything else. And so Paul lays it out for them, truth, and a lot of it, justification, sanctification, imputed righteousness, a whole lot going on here. So I hope you guys look forward to a study in this book. Once again, my guess is it'll probably take us about three years to do so. So, and don't, hey, I know a guy who took him five. So, you see, we're going to fly through it. So, let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time this morning that we can just kind of introduce ourselves to this, this letter, this book, this, as what he calls this theological treatise, Lord, that is without question the most theological book in the New Testament. Uh, a, a lot said, a lot of doctrine, a lot of discussion. I pray, Lord, that it would be a blessing uh, to all of us here, to myself as I study and as I teach, and for those who hear, I pray, Lord, that as we go slowly, we'll, we'll begin to learn some things that it's very, very important that we understand about our own salvation in Christ. And so, Lord, prepare our hearts, uh, bring friends and family and whoever else needs to hear this. Uh, may the people in this church invite folks. There are some people who truly need and desire an in-depth study of of, uh, of God's word, and this will certainly be one of them. And so teach us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.